Hello and welcome to Hollywood Scandals of Yesteryear, the show where we profile stars and issues of the silent era of Hollywood. This week, Larry Seaman. He was a comedian, and we're going to find out all about him right after this. Turn a can of Dr. Lyons tooth powder today for a few cents at any drugstore. See what a surprise you get the first time you use it. We believe you'll never again return to ordinary, less effective ways of cleaning your teeth. Well, thank you, Dr. Lyons. Like I said, this is Hollywood Scandals of Yesteryear, and I am your host, Gabriel Russo. And this week, the sad life, well, not, whatever, the life of Larry Seaman. Sometimes sad, sometimes not. He was a big star. Larry Seaman was kind of a bug-eyed comedian. You'll, uh, you know, the picture will be up on the site. He was born 1889 and died 1928, October 8th, 1928. He was an actor, director, producer, and screenwriter during the silent film era. Uh, once again, I'm getting most of my information from Wikipedia and from IMDb. He was a major comedian of his day, but now remembered mainly uh, for working with both Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy, of, Oliver, or of uh, Laurel and Hardy fame, before they were paired together. So it was Laurel and Seaman, or Hardy and Seaman, I guess. He was also famous for directing, uh, as well as appearing in, the 1925 silent film edition of The Wizard of Oz, which had a slight influence on the better-known Talkie, released in 1939. In 2005, the three-disc DVD version of uh, Wizard of Oz came out, and they included the 1925 silent version. That might be an interesting one to go and watch. That would be, be pretty cool. He was born in... West Point, Mississippi, he was the son of a, a vaudeville magician named Zira the Great. While his mother worked as his assistant to Zira the Great, Seaman joined the Parents Act until his father's death. He completed his education in Savannah, Georgia, and then moved to New York City where he worked at The Sun and later the New York Morning Telegraph as a cartoonist and a graphic artist. While he was working as an artist, Seaman appeared in monologues in vaudeville where he attracted the attention of Vitagraph Studios. And in 1915, he was offered a contract with Vitagraph. Soon after signing, he started working behind the scenes as a uh, scenario writer, a director, and a producer for actor Huey Max films. He occasionally cast himself in bit parts in the films that he worked on. And when Mac left Vitagraph, Seaman stepped in and began playing the lead roles. He usually played a white-faced goof in a derby hat and overalls, who would enter any given situation, a bakery, a restaurant, a construction site, prison camp, etc., and cause chaos, with people being covered with debris and uh, everything being destroyed. <laughs> he, uh, he was short. They were shorts, slapstick comedies. They were made and released quickly and prolifically. So, uh, you know, he was doing them quick and releasing them very quick, and uh, he became well-known to moviegoers. As his fame grew, his films expanded from one reel, which was about 12 minutes, to two reels, and he was given a free hand in making them. This became a dangerous policy, I guess, because he became notorious for being expensive and extravagant with his two reel comedies, and they uh, often cost more than the average five reel feature film. I think that was kind of a, a trope at the time, because we, we read about, you know... Uh, 
other filmmakers of the time having the same issue. You get more freedom, even today. You get more freedom, and then you tinker, and you tinker, and you tinker, and you don't you don't release it until you think it's absolutely perfect, when it's never going to be absolutely perfect. And so, anyway, his career sort of suffered because he was becoming too expensive. His, uh, you know, his bosses were kind of getting on him. As a former cartoonist, he staged similarly cartoony sight gags with elaborate special effects. It became known as No Gag Was Too Big for Semen. He loved chase sequences involving airplanes. Sometimes he used three in a film. He would explode barns, falling water towers, car wrecks, explosions. He loved that type of stuff. And then the liberal use of substances in which to douse people. <laughs> he would fit right in at Nickelodeon Studios, I guess. A typical Larry Seaman comedy might involve barrels of flour, sacks of soot, ink, jam, pits filled with mud, anything where somebody would fall in and it would be a visual, you know, because, I mean, especially back then, film, it was only a visual medium, so, because there was obviously no sound, so, you know, anything that would make a splash, quote-unquote, you know. In his film The Bellhop, a man sleeping under the spray of a malfunctioning fountain imagines that he is swimming in the ocean, and in his sleep, he dies off the bed, through the floor, and into a vat of paint in the lobby below. Oliver Hardy recalled in an interview that Seaman, when staging his comedy The Sawmill in a lumber camp, now that's kind of a famous one, I seem to have heard of that one before, he would not use traditional painted stage sets. Instead, he insisted on building a permanent log cabin complete with all the modern conveniences. Modern conveniences. Uh, the production budget soared, and his bosses at Vitagraph finally said, uh, no, that's enough. They demanded that he become his own producer and underwrite his films personally. So he had to sink all his own personal money into making his films, which is, you know. He tried to reverse his financial problems by getting into feature films and produced and starred in a few features in the mid-20s. But by 1927, things were not going well. Uh, he was back in short subjects released through educational pictures. He filed for bankruptcy in 1928 and returned to vaudeville. While he was traveling on the vaudeville circuit, he suffered a nervous breakdown and went back to Los Angeles. So we're going to backtrack a little. And uh, in 1918, he, uh, he began featuring in films a young comedian named Stan Laurel. Their successful pairing seemed like it was going to be the new comedy team. But for reasons that really aren't quite clear, Laurel left the partnership before they really got big. They made a couple of movies together, a few movies. Coincidentally, within a year, Laurel's future partner, Oliver Hardy, would join Seaman's troupe eventually becoming a prominent member of his film crew. They would use the same people over and over again in their, you know, to make their films. By that time, Larry Seaman was one of the top movie comedians, operating, like I said, as his own boss on the Vitagraph lot. He began, like I say, he began having problems with the brass because his costs were soaring. There were a series of lawsuits. There was a new contract where, like I say, he was responsible for his own production. Critics were beginning to complain that his films were... The same, there was no new, nothing new. That was just as he was answerable only to himself, and things didn't go well. They were The Vitagraph complained that the product he was providing was substandard, and in 1923 he left the studio. He went into feature films, like I said. His first was in a partnership with I.E. Chadwick, who had Chadwick Pictures, and uh, did two reelers. 
and features. The adaptation of The Wizard of Oz, which really is, is what he's most known for, <laughs> was a disastrous dream project. The film boasted a superb cast with semen at the helm, and it was wildly expensive. It was enormously promising. Yet, Seaman failed utterly to capitalize on that promise, and the film The Wizard of Oz in 1925 turned out to be a trite, inept, run-of-the-mill comedy that seemed only to share a title and character with Frank Baum's beloved story. Instead of the classic film that it could have been and should have been, you know, it, it was not well accepted by audiences. He was reeling from this failure, and he moved desperately into work for hire, while attempting to stave off creditors. Chadwick Pictures folded, I'm sure in no small part to the failure of The Wizard of Oz. And by 1927, he was back to working as a gag writer. He had a gangster role in uh, Joseph von Sternberg's picture Underworld in 1927, and he got pretty good reviews for playing, you know, a, a heavy. But it was really, it wasn't, it nothing, nothing caught on after that. He cut himself a deal with educational pictures, which is reminiscent of the one that he had in a last-ditch effort to produce his two-reelers. These also unfortunately failed, and with him facing bankruptcy, he lost everything he owned, and at only 39 years old was considered a has-been in movies, and that portended his uh, return to vaudeville. In the summer of 1928, Larry Seaman fell ill with tuberculosis, and suffered, and simultaneously, it seems, suffered a nervous breakdown. He entered a sanitarium near, near San Bernardino, California, where he reportedly died on October the 8th. However, an air of mystery surrounds his death, since his wife and former co-star Dorothy Dwan was allowed almost no contact with him and never saw the body, which was ordered cremated after a tightly secured funeral, which was carried out per Seaman's previous instructions, and to which almost no attendees were allowed. That's all very secretive. The whereabouts of Seaman's cremated remains are to this day a mystery, and his widow professed until her death to be mystified by the circumstances of his passing. With enormous financial obligations facing him, Larry Seaman could have easily considered a dramatic escape of this sort from his creditors. Whether he did or whether his death was the sad final chapter to a high-rising, briefly brilliant, but ultimately short-lived career may never be known for certain. That's by a man named Jim Beaver, who uh, wrote for IMDb, a mini-biography. That is very interesting. Like I said, in uh, the short films, his popularity rivaled Charlie Chaplin in the early 20s. He played, I didn't mention, he played uh, in his in The Wizard of Oz, he played the Scarecrow. Oliver Hardy played the Tin Man, and his leading lady and wife, Dorothy Dwan, played Dorothy. Basically, like I said, it was not a success and killed his career, which was already on the skids. Yeah, it's believed, it's it seems to be believed that he faked his own death. That's very interesting. Huh. And so, that's going to do it for this quickie episode of Hollywood Scandals of Yesteryear. Pretty scandalous, I guess, if you fake your own death. Now, it's not proven that he did, but that seems to be the prevailing wisdom, you know, to escape his uh, his creditors. Huh. Well, like I said, that's going to do it for this week. Hollywood Scandals of Yesteryear. I have been your host, Gabe Russo. You can follow me on Twitter, at GRusso1971. You can check out the page on Facebook, 
uh, facebook.com slash Hollywood Scandals of Yesteryear. Please rate and review me on iTunes if you would. That would be fantastic. You can leave a message on Podomatic, which is where this show is hosted. And uh, they are wonderful web hosts for podcasts. Yeah. Drop me a line. If you like the show, please do. If you don't like the show, just, you know, keep it to yourself. I don't need to hear it. (laughs) And until next week, when we will do... I believe next week is going to be the story of Cortland Dines. So, join me next week for another Hollywood Scandals of Yesteryear. Thanks for listening. Bye.